Obstetrics Podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm joined today by Suzanne Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today, we're going to be reviewing a case study, an unusual case of obstetric hemorrhage. So pay attention and see if you can see what the issues are in this case and maybe determine the cause of the obstetric hemorrhage. Suzanne, you want to take us through the case? Sure. I'm going to start off with uh, patient history. This was a 32-year-old patient, Gravita 1. She had a BMI of 27. She has a history of infertility, and this is an IVF pregnancy. Her social determinants of health screen, she's married, English-speaking, and insured. Her prenatal care, there were no risk factors noted. Her medical history, no risk factors. And her surgical history of IVF times two. She comes into L&D for an induction of labor at 40 and two-sevenths weeks. Her estimated fetal weight is 7 pounds and 10 ounces, and her admission vital signs are 97.9. Her blood pressure is 104 over 66. Her heart rate is 110. There's no temp or respiratory rate recorded. And I know we've talked about this quite a bit in other podcasts, but we're seeing a lot of that if a vital sign is not flowing over to the flow sheet. Sometimes they're eliminated in your documentation because I know that is um, standard as well as standard practice to take a temp and a respiratory rate. But don't forget to record those because we're seeing a lot of those missing in the documentation. So on admission, her cervical exam is 2, 80% and minus 2 And the physician comes in early in the day, ruptures her membranes, clear fluid is noted, and she started on Pitocin. A little later on in the day, she gets an epidural that um, has, she has some few, a few hypotensive episodes afterwards. Her blood pressures, like in the 80s, over 50s, they correct her blood pressure with positioning and IV fluids, and she continues to labor on the Pitocin, she becomes complete, and then she starts to push. Her second stage of labor is three and a half hours when she's diagnosed with a rest of descent at plus one station. The fetus is OT position, um, and she's unable to rotate uh, the fetus at that time. So a decision uh, was made, discussed with the patient. Patient agreed to go on with the the C-section. And uh, one other note, just to, to note, her admission hemoglobin is 13.2 and her hematocrit is 39.4. So both normal values for her admission uh, lab values. So she moves to the OR. They um, dose her epidural up. And it's noted again that she becomes hypotensive uh, with that dosing of the epidural. Of course, Uh, a denser block for the C-section. She delivers, the baby weighed eight pounds and eight ounces. So a little bit off on the the estimated fetal weight, but um, not anything unusual. So here's where things start to change. Let me go through her INO in the OR. So 
In the OR, she receives 900 milligrams of IV fluid. I mean, 900 milligrams, I can't even talk. 900 milliliters of IV fluids in the OR. Um, and her blood loss, though, anesthesiologist marks her estimated blood loss at 800 milliliters. The nurse and the OB physician record it as a liter. So there's some discrepancy there. And her urine output in the OR is 175 milliliters. So her medications in the OR are pretty extensive. So to to correct her hypotension, she gets numerous doses of phenylephrine. She gets her Pitocin bolusing following the delivery. And then she has complaints of anxiety and pain during the uh, C-section. So they dose her with Versed. Zofran, fentanyl, she has two doses of fentanyl, and four doses of propofol. So she has some conscious sedation on top of the epidural, along with two doses of the pain meds. So her vital signs when she's leaving the OR, 77 over 46, which gives us a mean arterial pressure of 56. Her heart rate is 74, so not tachycardic. Her respiratory rate's 18, and her pulse oximetry is 97%. Stephanie, you want to, what do you think about all of that? She's leaving the OR, 77 over 46. Her MAP is 56. She's not tachycardic, not tachypnic, and her pulse ox is 97%. Yeah, well, first of all, Um, I want to remind everybody that a normal mean arterial pressure is above 65 millimeters of mercury. So, you know, in OB, we don't necessarily use mean arterial pressure as much as in, say, the intensive care unit. But it's such a useful tool to translate the blood pressure into a, a more simple to understand number. So she's pretty significantly hypotensive. And, um, and they transfer her to the PACU like that. So I'm, I would be wondering why is she hypotensive? What's the cause of it and what are we doing about it? So I'm, I'm seeing a kind of a lack of acknowledgement and lack of action around clinical significant hypotensive, not borderline. Now we've harped on, you know, hypotension and tachycardia, or at least I hope people recognize that we've harped on hypotension and tachycardia equals hemorrhage, especially in a post-operative patient, uh, but that she's not tachycardic. So that's an interesting observation here, but my antenna would be up and I think somebody needs to be figuring out why she's hypotensive and doing something about it. A couple of other things, um, you know, just kind of highlight, you know, there's conflicting estimated blood losses. Now, first of all, it's not quantified or an objective assessment of blood loss. It is opinion. And we are notoriously bad at estimating blood loss, but at minimum, there needs to be agreement between everyone involved in the case as to what the best estimate of blood loss is. So that's kind of a concern that we've got some conflict going on right there. Yeah, even though it's just 200 milliliters, it's still conflicting. So it's and it's EBL. So we don't know the true blood loss. I think from a nursing perspective, my questions would be, is she stable to leave the OR? And do we have a diagnosis 
as to why she's hypotensive, like what is causing her hypotension? Because just movement from the OR to the PACU is not going to make her blood pressure better, right? So I would want to make sure everybody knew that this patient is significantly hypotensive. She doesn't have a tachycardia that is would be considered compensatory to that hypotension and what is causing it. That's what I would want to know as the nurse. So the, and, and I know also as a nurse in this situation, I would want to say, again, does everybody know? And is she okay? Because now I'm going to be assuming care for this patient in the PACU time period. So the other thing I'd want to know is where should she go? Should she go to a formal PACU? Or are you going to take her back to an LDR room like so many of units do? They go back to the LDR room and would she go there? Am I going to need other kinds of monitoring like ECG monitoring or some, something like that? So those would be all my questions. Yeah. I mean, you make a really good point about, you know, is everybody on the same page? Like, did the surgeon even know that the patient was hypotensive when they left the operating room? Because the surgeon may or may not still be with the patient when she's transferred out of the operating room. But, you know, are we acknowledging this? And should she leave the OR? Is there a possibility we're going to need to re-explore her? If so, let's do it before we leave the operating room. Let's figure out what's happening. So we're kind of missing a crucial step in, you know, determining whether it's okay to actually leave the operating room. There's no acknowledgement. And if there was, it's not documented. So we have no way of understanding what that conversation was, if it even took place. Right. So yeah, those are, I mean, that is so true. And I think this happens more than we think and more than we know, because we find out about it, obviously, and you find out about it, the people listening usually find out about these things after an event occurs. So you're going back and you're looking at this and you go, aha, she was hypotensive when she left the OR. But is there any kind of routine process, standard process and communication between the providers from the anesthesiology department to the obstetrics department to nursing? And so everybody is aware of that. And then a decision is made as to where this patient should go. Right. You know, the other thing to think about in this case so far, before we even get to the immediate post-operative period, is that, you know, she had a number of things going on in the operating room even before she leaves to go to to the recovery area. And, you know, she's hypotensive. She's getting a lot of different medications to deal with that. But she's also receiving medications that can cause it. But let's say we're attributing this hypotension to her epidural because she had had these hypotensive episodes during her labor. Well, if the epidural is so dense that she's that it's causing hypotension, why is it not managing her pain adequately? So that to me seems a little bit unusual and I would want to know more about that. Um, and the anxiety now, I think maybe we need to do a podcast on anxiety, Suzanne. Yeah. Because, I mean, patients don't have sudden onset of an anxiety disorder at random times during their labor and delivery process. I know. Anxiety should be a sign to look for why is she anxious. Right. And and we see that in a lot of bad outcomes, don't we? We see the word anxiety. Uh, An attorney that 
we know said that anxiety, if it's ever put into the medical record, it should like notify the the head honchos, you know, the the top administrator in the hospital. Ding, ding, ding. There's something going on in L&D because they wrote anxiety in the chart. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we normalize it and it's especially new onset. Like You've got to assess what's going on with this patient. You know, she could be hypoxemic, but in my opinion, her anxiety is probably related to her hypotension and lack of adequate perfusion, which is going to create a, you know, a claustrophobic, anxious type of feeling that needs to be addressed. Anxiety is a, is a clue. Yeah. And we don't need to sedate it away. We need to evaluate what's causing it instead of just treating the anxiety. So she had a couple things going on, especially in hindsight, that that are red flags that need to be evaluated. But even in real time, um, the degree of hypotension is is unusual and requires additional evaluation, in my opinion. Right. I mean, and we do all of these pre-op timeouts, timeout. And, you know, I, I don't know if anybody out there has ever done a post-op timeout. <laughs> you know, not only are our counts correct, but we have normal vital signs or we have no anxiety, we have no pain. I, I don't know what it might, cont- you know, entail, but everybody's on the same page. Maybe we're agreeing that the QBL or the EBL is blank or that these were the events during the surgery. I don't know. Just an yeah. idea to think about. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Because you, you, there are going to be a lot of scenarios where you're going to be transferring an unpatient stable, unstable patient out of the operating room, but maybe they're going directly to an intensive care unit, which is where they're better served at that point. Right. But, Right. And, and, and I, I think it's also goes along with this normalization of C-section that we've uh, discussed. You know, this is a major abdominal surgery and we have normalized it. It's the number one performed surgery in the United States. Um, so that is, uh, and it's open abdomen, right? So we've discussed that. Yeah. Um, so anyway. So tell us what happens and where she goes when they leave the operating room. So this patient goes back to the LDR room uh, for her post-operative, you know, recovery time period. And so she gets there and she is complaining of 10 out of 10 pain. She's moaning. She's visibly uncomfortable. She doesn't want fundal checks done, which... Again, I don't know of, you know, too many post-op C-section patients that do want, you know, us to check their funduses, but she has, a again, a dense epidural that she had for the surgery, and she's still complaining of pain, so that's a little bit of a weird, wild assessment uh, that would kind of alert me. Maybe something else is going on. I don't know. But her uterus is firm. She um, it can feel the uterus cramping, she states, and the, the uterus is midline uh, at the umbilicus. Her lochia, small amount. And here's her um, vital signs on admission to PACU. 99.8, so she's not cold, that's good. Respiratory rate, 16. Blood pressure, 63 over 31. So that's a mean arterial pressure of 41 and her SATs are 96%. So the anesthesiologist remained at the bedside to continue monitoring the blood pressure and goes ahead and gives another dose of phenylephrine. 
But her blood pressure, 69 over 31, a MAP of 38, not tachycardic again at 95. Her Pitocin is running in at 999 milliliters per hour for her post-op Pitocin. Blood pressure repeat, 77 over 46, MAP of 31, heart rate of 91. And then her blood pressure finally comes up. I guess that'll be about... Um, let's see, 11 minutes after getting phenylephrine, her blood pressure is 108 over 83. So you can see that vasoconstrictive part of the um, diastolic pressure coming up and her heart rate's 98. So the anesthesiologist leaves the bedside at that point. Shortly thereafter, she's severely hypotensive again, 69 over 40, a MAP of 29, and a blood pressure repeated 70 over 38 with a MAP of 32. And her heart rate's 96. Still complaining of this 10 out of 10 pain. She's moaning in between fundal checks. Her uterus is firm. She says she can feel it cramping. And it is midline and at the umbilicus still. But now there's a, a change in the lochia. The nurse documents that it's moderate. And in their algorithm or in their documentation system, it says consider weighing chucks or pads. And those are changed at that time, but the nurse does not weigh them. And how much time has passed at this point since she, since she left the operating room? 15 minutes. So she's had one dose of the phenylephrine and the anesthesiologist has left. So the nurse calls the anesthesiologist and says, this patient is you know, 10 out of 10 pain, moaning. And so the anesthesiologist orders her to have a pain med. So they give the pain med IV and she still continues to have such severe hypotension, 56 over 32. That's a map of 24. Her heart rate though is just 85. So there's no, again, compensatory tachycardia. Her blood pressure repeated 54 over 29, that's a MAP of 25, heart rate is 80. Lochia check, uh, again, 15 minutes later, is moderate. They change her chucks again. Normal SATs, normal heart rate, but her blood pressure, 55 over 31 now. MAP of 24. So the nurse calls the OB, who happens to be in the OR again, and informs the OB that the patient's having some extra bleeding. She said two uh, moderate lochia. The, the fundus is, is still firm, though, uh, but moderate lochia, and the fundus is still at the umbilicus and midline position. So they, she gives a report to the OB, the OB states and orders give her 800 micrograms of Cytotec per rectum. So the nurse then gives that, but still significant hypotension, 66 over 34 with a MAP of 32, and the Cytotec is given. So now we're, we've been in the PACU for 30 minutes, still 10 out of 10 pain. even with Just to clarify, Suzanne, we're, our PACU is, is actually the patients in the LDR, not a not a separate recovery area. Is that correct? That's correct. So yeah, that that's a a good point. So I know a lot, again, a lot of units will do that, um, but she's in a labor room. 
So she, these blood pressures are coming off of her um, fetal monitor. So the the 30 minutes now, her blood pressure is 71 over 38 with a MAP of 33, and her heart rate's 120. So this is the first uh, reading that her heart rate is up to 120, but again, her, her pain is 10 out of 10. So let's talk about what the differential could be. So first, you know, as the nurse, are you comfortable having this severely hypotensive patient in the labor and delivery room and no physician at the bedside? No yeah. charge nurse helping. Nobody's there. Heck no. No, would that would not. be that. would. <laughs> well, you know me, I would be like, hey, I need some help in here. You know, uh, let's come share my anxiety. Talk about anxiety. That would be me. <laughs> So what can we be dealing with? Well, the unusual thing here is that the patient is not tachycardic until this last heart rate of 120. But in my opinion, hemorrhage is still at the top of the list because she's just had surgery. She'd been pushing for three and a half hours. She's I mean, She could be having a concealed hemorrhage. Um, I would still have it on my list, although I'm not, I'm not certain why we're not having a, a significant tachycardic response at this point to compared to the degree of hypotension. Right. I mean, I mean, I would be thinking that too. I mean, that was probably the first thing I learned in nursing school. <laughs> you know, first lesson, uh, post-op patient is tachycardic. What do I think about? It's always hemorrhage until proven <laughs> otherwise, right? Absolutely. Um, the other's medications. Now she's gotten a lot of meds in the operating room. We're not that far out from the operating room. She would still have medication effect on board. She's gotten another dose of potent, uh, narcotic. So that could absolutely be causing or contributing to her hypotension and not necessarily, um, allow for tachycardic response. She could, this could be residual effect of the epidural. It could be a combination of all of those things happening at the same time. She could have an undiagnosed cardiac issue where she's not able to mount an adequate cardiac output, especially after getting um, volume and medications, et cetera. And, you know, much, much lower on the list, but still I would consider like, is there something neurologic going on that's not allowing her to mount an appropriate response, which would be you know, certainly, like I said, not at the top of the list, but to be thorough, I would consider that as well. And I'm sure there's probably other things I haven't considered, but those would be the things that immediately come to mind to me as potential causes. Right. So then I would want to, you know, as the nurse be talking to you about that, right? Say to, you know, what is going on? Because as a nurse, I'm not diagnosing. I am, my responsibility is to do the assessments, note, any kind of abnormal assessment, then communicate that to the physician and then reassess and to carry out any interventions and then do that reassessment piece. And then it starts all over again. So I think that, you know, the nurse is definitely doing very, very frequent assessments, you know, more so than Q15 minutes, which would be standard She's doing it every five minutes or even sometimes even more so than that because, and to me, that tells me when I'm reviewing a case like this retrospectively, it shows me that the nurse was concerned about the vital signs. So. Sure. 
Well, now we're okay. We're five minutes after um, she's given the side attack, the mesoprostol at the on the order of the OB, and then uh, now what does she do? So the nurse calls the anesthesiologist back and says, "I gave her the pain med. Um, it's helping a little bit, but she's still hypotensive, and you know we've given the phenylephrine." And it's she's still significantly hypotensive because I think it's important. Again, you you assess, you communicate, which the nurse did. You carry out the interventions, and then you reassess. So the nurse is reassessed. She's still hypotensive, and so the anesthesiologist says, "Give the patient uh, some ephedrine now." And at this time, her blood pressure is seventy eight over forty four. Uh, a map of 34 and her heart rate is 105. So she gives a Fedrin. This time she gives it IM uh, for some uh, prolonged uh, effect versus just IV. Um, but she's still, if her pressure comes up about, you know, 10 minutes later. She is 92 over 45, but still a mean arterial pressure of 47. So that's why I love using the mean arterial pressure and not just systolic or diastolic, because sometimes I think that we can just look at one and go, well, the systolic was good. That, that's normal. It was 92, but her diastolic is 45, which gives us a mean arterial pressure of 47. Her Pitocin is still going in, and they went ahead and gave her another uh, small dose of um, pain med to continue with the pain management. Her uterus. Here, yeah, can go I ahead. Comment here. Yeah, yeah. You know, at this point, you're giving the patient meds to bring her pressure up, and pain meds, which could potentially lower her pressure further. And no one's at the bedside. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah, it's giving me anxiety. Okay. Her uterus is firm again um, at the umbilicus midline. Lochia is small, so she only had two assessments where the lochia was moderate. Everything else has been small amount. She's talking. The The newborn is in the room with um, her and her husband. She's holding the newborn at times. Uh, she's no longer moaning in between the checks. She's holding a conversation with the nurse without grimacing or moaning um, her pressure now is 102 over 51, which gives us a normal mean arterial pressure of 68. I think that's our first one for the for the PACU, and we're right at an hour being in the PACU. Um, her heart rate's 101. Her respiratory rate is 16. and um, But she's talking, but she continues to say that she's 10 out of 10 pain. Um, and so the nurse does some teaching at that time about you know, pain and um, what is her realistic expectation or her pain level, her desired pain level. So that's documented well in the in the record. But now we're about uh, 45, uh, hour and 15 minutes in to pack you time period, uh, 112 over 57, heart rate's 109. Still a small amount of lochia, firm uterus, but she's still saying she's 10 out of 10 pain. And they give her a third dose of the pain med in the PACU, and that makes us up to about 90 minutes uh, during the recovery period. So still the continued pain 
and continued small amount now of lochia and firm uterus. So this continues. Uh, They give her one more dose of pain med before she leaves the PACU. And her final vital signs in the uh, recovery period are 113 over 80, which gives us a mean arterial pressure of 91, and her heart rate is 120. So that's the highest heart rate that we've seen so far. And this patient is transferred to the mother-baby unit. Um, total intake and output for the, um, for the OR and PACU would be intake of 1454. Her output was 1100. Um, and that's with the EBL of 800 and not the one liter. And there's no EBL done in the PACU. So that's with her output is just EBL in her urine. Yeah. So she was in the recovery setting for about two hours with persistent hypotension for most of that time. And to be clear, was seen by the anesthesiologist right as she was transferred And in that two-hour time period, no other provider saw the patient in the recovery time period. That's true. So, I mean, there's a couple things to point out here in the recovery period. Um, She was, you know, very sensitive that whole time to the epidural medications. We knew that from how she responded during her labor. And, you know, we talked about how they were comfortable transferring her out of the operating room despite having received several doses of phenylephrine in the operating room and still being hypotensive when they leave without considering could there be something else going on? Maybe she's not ready to be to leave the operating room. Um, it seems like in the recovery room, the nurse and the anesthesiologist felt that her issues were due to the anesthesia approach, uh, medications, epidural, et cetera, and not because of a hemorrhage because her uterus was firm and she didn't have what is described as excessive vaginal bleeding. But I want to point something out here that it is absolutely possible to be bleeding in the recovery period post cesarean section and not have visible bleeding. It could be in the abdomen. It can be retroperitoneal, but you don't have to have vaginal bleeding and an atonic uterus in order to have hemorrhage post cesarean birth. And I think that's important to remember because atony is very, very common, but it's not the only reason for bleeding. Right. Which is the reason why you would want to have the obstetrician come in and assess the patient too. Um, and, and for that differential diagnosis. And I think that that becomes an issue in the, the recovery time period for the nurse is who do you call, you know, do I just call the anesthesiologist for pain and hypotension or do I call for a heart rate of like, or do I call the OB? Who do I call as the nurse? And those clear communication pathways, again, have to be determined in your hospital. A lot of nurses feel that the only person they should call would be the anesthesiologist. Then the anesthesiologist would call the OB. But I think from a nursing perspective, this becomes an issue for us. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the nurse called the OB and they weren't available. They were in the operating room. So when do you say, okay, who is available? 
And, you know, what's the escalation process? Because the patient was not responding. Her blood pressure was not improving um, for a prolonged period of time, despite interventions that were happening, but there's no one assessing. So for the physicians uh, out there listening, you have to come to the bedside and evaluate a patient like this. It's not acceptable to say it's this cause or that cause without a complete assessment of the patient. And if you're not able, then you need to instruct the nurse on what you expect, who can she call. And if you're the nurse, you've got to figure out who you can call. What are your resources? And that to me kind of brings up, do you think this patient could have been a candidate for a rapid response? Like if this patient was in a med surge unit and this was happening, how are they reacting? Are we activating a rapid response for severe hypotension? Right. Same thing if the patient's in the main OR PACU. Um, do they have guidelines that say when to call and who to call? And are they very specific? And then do those guidelines differ from a recovery in an L&D unit, whether that is an L&D PACU or whether it's an L&D uh, room, you know, like a labor delivery recovery room, the standard really should be the same and not based upon environment. And, you know, so that would be a question that I would have uh, in this case as well. And what were the issues that you felt were encountered with the hemorrhage protocol? I mean, it's great to have a hemorrhage protocol, but they have to have all the components necessary to make sure that the right things are done. And then they have to be practiced and then they have to be followed in real time. So what were the issues here? Well, the issues here was that it wasn't followed. So the, the protocol stated that when a patient hit an EBL of one liter, which we remember EBLs can be way underestimated, uh, but when you hit an EBL of one liter, then you started doing QBL. So she hit that leader, depending upon whose documentation you wanted to look at in the OR, whether it was the anesthesiologist or the OB, she hit that EBL. If you followed the OB's EBL of one liter, then she should have started weighing the pads uh, uh, in, the, in the PACU time period, the recovery time period. Also, it stated to start considering weighing the pads if the patient has moderate lochia, which wasn't done. It was just, again, it wasn't even estimated. So there was, there was no EBL or QBL during the PACU. So there were two indicators to start performing QBL based on the documentation. Right, right. And, and that, the, was, and that yeah. wasn't done. The other issue with the hemorrhage protocol, it was not stage-based. So it wasn't during stage one, you know, you lose this much blood, you you consider these, you know, measures, you you know, do vital signs more frequent, blah, blah, blah. Stage two is this amount of blood, and then you do these. So it this patient would have, according to their hemorrhage protocol, would have put her into a, a time period. It wasn't, it wasn't, again, staged, but it would have put her into consider these differential diagnoses. And to do that, you have to have, a, number one, a physician come to the bedside, but number two, have a speculum exam. And that was what it stated. But it was like a lot of your hemorrhage protocols that you see. These are your options during this time period. And the physician, though, decides which of those options to take. So which, you know, uterotonics are we going to choose? Are we going to use a bockery? Are we going to use a 
an ebb? Are we going to to you know do a speculum exam? That's that's usually the physician or midwife's you know prerogative and and determination at that point, not the the staff nurses. So then, what happens when she gets up to mother baby? We're now three hours post surgery, post op, and she's on mother baby. Tell us what happens. So she gets up there in the initial, um, we're again, three hours post-op. The initial assessment by the nurse on mother baby is that her uterus is boggy. And so she does uterine massage. The uterus firms up. It firms up to the umbilicus. And the nurse calls uh, a nurse practitioner that's covering at that time. Uh, Still no QBL or EBL. They, uh, the nurse documents that she has small amount of lochia and the, the nurse practitioner says, go ahead and draw some labs and we're going to do an ECG, uh, you know, call for that. We're going to order one of those. So I guess because she was a slightly tachycardic, but not, you know, it was like in the one teens. Maybe I can point out here that, you know, part of your assessment especially in cases where hemorrhage might be going on, includes labs. And that wasn't ever done or even considered or discussed in her recovery period. So um, that was a lost opportunity there. Yeah, so they they do them now, which is, it ends up resulting about three hours and 45 minutes after her C-section. Her white count's 20.41 her hematocrit, which had been 39, is now 25.7. Her hemoglobin, which had been 13, I think 13.7, her hemoglobin now is 8.4, and her platelets are 142. Yeah, so a couple things, right? <laughs> this patient is anemic pretty significantly, and her platelets are, you know, lower. I mean, they certainly catch your eye, but she's not thrombocytopenic at this point. So immediately I'm thinking she's lost more blood than is documented or acknowledged or recognized. And this, I think, highlights the importance of QBL. Um, clearly this patient has lost blood because we're, we're now, you know, we're within a few hours of her delivery, her, her surgery, and it takes time for hemoglobin to drop. And so when you see a significant drop like this within that four hour period, that reflects that you may have an even bigger drop ahead of you as she equilibrates, especially with um, the addition of IV fluids. Right. I, I agree. And, and, and the role of cumulative QBL, not just that one time look in the OR, but that if you are continuing to have bleeding, especially in light of the fact that she was hypotensive, to continue that QBL would be an opportunity to be more accurate in in looking at her blood loss. So I do think that that was a missed opportunity. So they do the uh, ECG. They come up and do that. She has sinus sinus tachycardia. I know that's a shock to everybody listening Um, that, you know, I, I... ECG, do you, do you think it was necessary? No, it's that's that tells me that they don't understand the vital signs and they don't understand what's happening with this patient. This is there's no reason to think that this patient has an arrhythmia 
or is having some sort of myocardial ischemic event or anything else other than tachycardia that's compensatory or in response to some sort of issue. What this patient needed was a bedside assessment and a consideration of what the differential might be in an appropriate workup to figure out what's going on with her. Right. And I, that's what I would want if I was the nurse. I'd be like, and I would say that. I would, when I called to report these abnormal assessments, I would say, I want you to come to the bedside and assess this patient. And I think that that, at least I've been told this by you and other physicians, that that's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear this, you know, uh, okay, well, here's her one vital sign or her, you know, her labs. You want to hear what are your recommendations? And my recommendation would be, I need you to come to the bedside and, you know, assess this patient. So when did someone come and assess the patient? Well, not until the next day morning rounds and her morning labs were now her hemoglobin is 6.6 and her hematocrit is 19.9. And that is the first time that a physician comes to see this patient post-op. And that obviously, if I'm this patient's physician, I'm, I'm going to expect even without any ongoing blood loss, her hemoglobin is going to be lower the next morning because of this equilibration effect. But I also would have ordered some blood counts in between because 8.4, you, you can go the wrong direction real fast, but it, it's, um, there's a little bit too much um, comfort, I guess, with very abnormal assessments here and findings. So yeah, I would have definitely ordered, well, first of all, I would have assessed the patient, but at minimum repeat some labs before the following morning. Yeah, her vital signs have been stable this whole time out on a mother baby, it, with the exception of, again, those low teen uh, heart rates uh, initially, and then she normaled out into the 90s. Um, so then post-op day four, they are drawing these labs again. Her hemoglobin is six, and her hematocrit is 18. Um, so the patient... They, you know, discussed giving her some blood and the patient refused the blood. She said, I, I really want to try not to take any blood products. And I want to point out that a hemoglobin of six is not a mandatory transfusion. Okay. There's really, the, if the, there's no evidence of ongoing bleeding clinically, the patient is asymptomatic. She's not syncopal. Her vital signs are, you know, stable. Her tachycardia is managed or minimal, um, there's really, you don't have to transfuse because of a hemoglobin of six and the patient absolutely has the, op the right to refuse a transfusion. But this is an opportunity for IV iron. IV iron before this patient leaves the hospital can really give her a boost and a head start on building back her blood count much more quickly than if you just allow this to happen organically. So IV iron is absolutely an, an option. Even if let's say the patient agrees to blood and you, then you can minimize it. You can give her a unit or two units and then give her some IV iron in addition, if you need to, to kind of boost her up. And then you're going to follow this patient with a repeat blood count soon after going home and following up on this patient in a timely manner because she's severely anemic 
you know, what, uh, it's not okay to just say, she says, I don't want, I don't want blood. See you in six weeks. This patient needs some kind of follow-up. Right. I would, as the nurse too, want to make sure that she was really okay to care for herself, care for the baby as well. Uh, I can't imagine having a hemoglobin of six and walking around and taking care of a newborn. That would just be really a difficult task. Um, But this patient really wanted to go home. So, and, and they felt like she was, you know, stable to go home. Her her discharge blood pressure was 109 over 68. Her heart rate was 92 and her respiratory rate was 20. She was afebrile. She had scant lochia at this time and her fundus was firm. So she they they felt like, you know, they would follow up with her in the postpartum period. Yeah, and in in hindsight, knowing just what we know so far about this patient, I would say that this is explained by an a pretty gross underestimation of her intraoperative and even potentially postoperative loss, blood loss to explain her anemia. Um, obviously I'm sure there's going to be more to that story, but that that's where I would be thinking at this point that she's severely anemic because the blood loss was underestimated because they weren't doing QBL um, the discrepancy in the EBL suggests that maybe we're not real vigilant about monitoring blood loss um, or and verifying, et cetera. So that, to me, that means that's the most likely explanation at this point in time. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, uh, the opportunity to hone up that, that hemorrhage protocol, you know, you and I have read a lot of hemorrhage protocols in OB units and they, some of them very very tremendous, you know, tremendously vary from place to place. And uh, usually the nurses are aware of the protocol even more than the physicians and they've practiced it. They've had education on it. So I think it's an opportunity to, to do that simulation, make sure that this is the way that you want the protocol, but also to practice together with a interprofes- interprofessional team so that you can um, hone that up a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, even though this patient stabilized and went home on post-operative day four, there are so many opportunities here. And um, I think the fact that this patient was young and otherwise healthy without a lot of other comorbidities, et cetera, really served her. And she, you know, did well at this point, basically despite her care, not because of her care. So just because the outcome did not result in a death or some other horrific uh, event at this point, that doesn't mean that the care was acceptable. There are still a lot of opportunities to improve because the next time might not end so well. Yeah. I think sometimes we put these guidelines in place and we think, "Eh, we got that taken care of On to the next project. And we've got to make sure that it's hardwired and that and that the protocol's working, you know. There was nowhere in that protocol that said somebody should come to the bedside. And I think that needs to be very standardized. And that is not just protection, you know, from for the nurse or for the physician. It's protection for the patient. That's the key thing, you know. So getting somebody there is just so essential. So what next for this patient? Well, that's the the fun part about this podcast is 
we're going to follow this podcast up with a continuation of this case. So the next podcast we do, we're going to continue this patient and we will let you know then what happens to this patient when she goes home, because sometimes we don't find out about those things. So stay tuned to our next podcast. And I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our social media pages. So Facebook, we're at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. On Twitter, we're at OB Critical Care. On Instagram, at Critical Care OB. Or you can email us and send us a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. We really appreciate the recent suggestions. We've gotten a lot of feedback on case studies, so we wanted to do this one. And uh, hope you're not too disappointed we didn't give you the final outcome, but maybe we can entice you to turn tune back in again for the second part of this case study. Thanks again. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.